Hit me, let's go. Has it been good tonight? Did it have a good week? Thank you, Jesus. Kyle Bryant, thank you guys for that. Hey, Mr. Lord, Paul, we thank you for tonight. Thank you. Lord God, that here we are. We're worshiping you, Lord God. We're worshiping you, Spirit and Truth. We thank you for the opportunity. Lord God, not just to worship you with our words, Lord God, but to literally to worship you with our lives. So Father, tonight, Lord God, we present ourselves, Lord God, as a living sacrifice of praise. Lord God, it's just reasonable. And so Father, we just want to be reasonable believers tonight. Lord God, those that just laid their lives down, Lord God, for you. And Father, we thank you tonight, Lord God, the life that we now live, we live because of faith we have in the finished work of the cross of Calvary. So, Lord God, as we come into this place, Lord God, we come into the banner of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that we, your body, Lord God, can come and we can come to the table that you've prepared for us of your word, Lord God, to seek you, Lord God, to ingest that truth, Lord God, and to drink freely, Lord God, from the living water. So tonight, Lord God, as we come into your word, we thank you that your word is that lamp unto our feet, it's that light unto our path, Lord God, it is that, that source, Lord God, that source of life, that source of inspiration. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that that is the source, Lord God, that's come down from heaven, Lord God, to come and fill us tonight. So, Father, I pray for each one here tonight, Lord God, that you would just quicken, Lord God, our understanding, that you would open our minds up, Lord God, to receive your word and your truth. Father, we thank you for the person of the Holy Spirit, Lord God, that gift, Lord God, from heaven. Lord God, that one that's come, Lord God, to dwell in our life, to lead and guide us into all truth, Lord God, to teach us, Lord God, your ways. So, Father, we come tonight totally dependent upon you, Lord God, dependent upon you, Lord God, for our life our wisdom, our understanding, Lord God. We just submit our hearts and minds to you tonight, Lord God. So I ask that you would just cultivate your word in this, Lord God, that would bring forth much fruit. Father, I thank you, Lord God, for this opportunity. Father, I confess that in and of myself, I'm incapable, Lord God, of doing anything. But Father, I thank you, Lord God, that I'm not in and of myself. That, Lord God, I've been born again of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm a new creature in Him, Lord God. Old things have passed away, all things become new. Father, I thank you tonight that we are the company of the redeemed, Lord God. That we are set apart, Lord God. And tonight, Lord God, according to your word, we are seated with you in heavenly places. So, Father, we thank you, Lord God, that who we are in you, Lord God, enables us, Lord God, to do what you desire us to do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. amen. Um, thank you guys so much for coming out. We've uh, got folks that are joining us from, uh, from all over probably tonight, watching the live feed on the internet. Thank you guys for... For joining us as well, We're, uh, we began our uh, expository teaching in the, in the epistle of 1 John last week, kind of giving the introduction of why we do those things, but tonight we're going to jump right into it, so if you have your uh, Bible tonight, which I'm sure you did, turn to that, that first chapter of the epistle of 1 John, we're going to begin uh, looking at that. You know folks, last week we kind of began this, uh, this study into this book, and you know we talked about just the importance of studying the Word of God and how that uh, error can just so easily kind of slip into the best of situations. And you know, you think about the best of situations. The best of situations was that early first century church. I mean, that's a, that's a, a, a situation that got the word right off the plate. You know, how many of you in this place are, are parents? And you know, you think you parents, and maybe you've had parents that your kids have gone through different things in their life. And you always think to yourself, well, what if I would have done... How many besides me ever said that about your children? What if I would have done something different? And folks, you know what? I, I look at the word of that source. I think about the very best situation. When God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that was the very best situation. That was the very best parent. That was the very best opportunity that anyone could have. And still yet, in the midst of the very best situation, what did they decide to do? They made the very worst of decisions in that situation. 
And so folks, what we see throughout the Word of God is the best of situations, and in the middle of those, seeing some of the biggest problems that they're there. And so for me, it gives me some consolation, because I think to myself, you know what, man, I've, I've seen some, some big boo-boos, I've made some big mistakes or whatever else, and, and I think with, with, with my uh, limited ability, my limited knowledge, I can always go back to the source of God's Word and see how they came through it then and how we can come through it now. So we see those things that are there. And, you know, a, a lot of times we just have to go back and, and begin to examine that Word. I think about what it says in Acts 17.11 concerning the Bereans. It says they received the Word readily. They, they heard what Paul said, but they still searched the Scriptures to see if those things were so. And that's what we've got to develop. We've got to develop that thing where, listen, I, I want to keep my, my blade sharpened against that whetstone. I constantly don't want to become a, a, a victim of cliche Christianity or just, I, I just kind of know a lot about things. But I want to get into the, God, the Word of God and allow that Word to get into me. So tonight, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set the stage, literally, if you're taking notes, we're going to set the, the stage for the purpose or the intent of this epistle. The purpose and the intent for this uh, epistle by really just kind of taking the first four verses of chapter uh, of chapter 1. So we're not going to go any uh, further than those first four chapters in the next hour tonight. And I'm going to go ahead and read them to you. And we're going to, we're going to uh, uh, tread over them several times tonight in this study. And here's what it says. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we have handled with our hands, of the word of life. The verse 2 says, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Verse 3, That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that you may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And verse 4, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Anybody want the fullness of joy yeah. in their life? Amen. Folks, the good news about the Word of God, it doesn't take us somewhere and just leave us there. Right. You know, the Word of God doesn't say, you know what, Jesus died to set you free from sin and just leave you in your sin. You hear what I'm saying? He's not going to give you a, a victory from somewhere and leave you wrapped in chains. And so all of these things that he's describing in 1 John, the, the things that we've seen, the things that we've heard, the things that we've touched, there's a purpose in every one of those things that your joy may be full. How many of you want your testimony every single day when you get up and say, you know what, man, God, give me joy, unspeakable and full of glory. Now, I'm not talking about a joy that's dependent upon circumstance. But I'm talking about a joy that transcends circumstance. People are walking and looking at you thinking, well, why are you smiling all the time? I know what happened to you. Why, are you, why, why do you always just seem like you've got this grin on your face and you have such a positive attitude? Because I know the things that are happening in your life. I know the trouble that you're going through. And you've got that thing inside of you that your joy may be full because there's a greater reality than the things other people see. And it's what God has spoken into your life. And there's that peace that passes understanding, that comprehension. There's something that makes you alive. That it doesn't matter if a thousand fall by one side or ten thousand the other. You know the things are not going to come nigh to you. That there's a victory that overcomes even our faith. And there's a victory inside of us that has nothing to do with whether or not we can accomplish a certain task in a day. Because that victory was displayed upon the cross of Calvary. And so that's what the Word of God does. It allows us to come into that place of having our joy be Full. So tonight, I want to give you kind of a basic outline as to where these verses are going and where they're going to take us. And really what I believe that the, uh, the, the Apostle John wanted to, uh, to speak to us in, in the whole, really, of these three Johnny epistles. And so I'm going to give you a little outline tonight. And the, the first thing that these four verses are going to establish is, number one, the origin. The origin. If you're taking notes, you can put the origin dash from the beginning. 
Number one, the origin dash from the beginning. That's the first thing he's going to establish. The second thing is he's going to establish the authority. First thing, the origin or from the beginning. The authority next. And he says, we've seen, we've heard, we've touched. The origin from the beginning, the authority, we have seen, we have heard, we have touched. Then the third thing that he establishes in these first four verses is the intent. And the intent is an ABC that you can fellowship with us, you can fellowship with the Father, that your joy may be full, or that you can gain a proper perspective on things. So the intent is you have fellowship with us, you can have fellowship with the Father, so that your joy may be full, or that you can gain the proper perspective on things. So it's origin, authority, and intent. Folks, when you go through the Word and you begin to study, what you're going to find is you've always got to go back to that place of origin. Where did it come from? What is the source of that Word? And the second thing is, what is the authority in that Word? Has anybody ever had somebody come up to you and give you a Word? Well, I've got a Word for you. And how do they validate that Word? They'll always say, I've got a Word from the Lord. They want to give you the origin of that word. I've got a word from the Lord. So they want to give you the origin and they want to give you the authority. Because once they tell you that they have a word from the Lord, there's no argument. You can't say, well, listen, that, that's not the Lord. They can say, well, yes, it is the Lord. The Lord told me it was a word. Rather than somebody say, coming up to you and saying, Gideon, listen, man, I just feel impressed in my spirit. There's something I need to tell you. Now, I need you to judge that word. But folks, what we've done is we've made a, 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 an effort in the church. The church is what they've done is they, they've hid behind, I've got a word from the Lord for you. I've got this for you. Somebody want to get that door. I've got this and that and I want to do it. So the argument's over or the Lord told me this or the Lord told me that. Folks, listen, there's a lot of things that you may feel like the Lord has told you, but when you begin to really seek out and define what the real origin of it was, sometimes you just find out maybe it was a good intention. Maybe it was a, a bad situation. Maybe it was something else that somebody planted in your heart and life. But folks, we've got to always go back and see what the origin of those things is in order to establish the authority so we can really see the, the intent. And so 1 John says, that which was from the beginning. Somebody say, from the beginning. From the beginning. Amen. Folks, last night I, I introduced to you, we were talking about just all these things that began to happen in the church of Asia Minor. We talked about that Gnosticism that had come in. And those churches of Asia Minor, you know what those are, right? The second and third chapters of the book of the Revelation, the church at Sardis, the church at, La the church at Laodicea, the church at uh, uh, Ephesus, all those seven churches that are mentioned. And so when John wrote this, he was actually addressing a situation that was in real time. There was this effort that was coming in by this first century Gnosticism to come in to pervert and to pollute what was happening in the early church. Folks, i got news for you. It's still alive and well in the church today. You find those things that present themselves as the gospel, and as Galatians said, we mentioned it last week, it's not a gospel at all. And if any man comes preaching another gospel except the one that you heard preached here, he said, let them be accursed. And so we see that these Gnostics came in and they began to bring this belief system to the body of Christ that was contrary to what had been established by the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles. Now think about this. This belief system implied some deviant things that were really dangerous. And I want you to look exactly what they were. Number one, and we talked about this briefly. We bring some of you that weren't here with us up to, up to speed. The first thing that they began to teach is that matter was completely evil and that the spirit is completely good. That anything created is always going to be evil and anything that was spiritual is always good. Thus, the second thing they taught, if God is good, then it must have been some lesser God or the Old Testament God is what they taught 
that was the one that created matter, and thus God was responsible for creating evil. So you can just see what the problems are already arising, that there was a lesser God, there was this God of the Old Testament, that's not the God that, 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 that ended up becoming Emmanuel, that he was this lesser God, and he was responsible for evil. And so, as a result, number three, is that Jesus was not really Emmanuel or God come in the flesh, but rather that he was just a being that ended up being possessed by God at his baptism, and that the Spirit of God departed at his crucifixion. Now, we may think to ourselves that those things are way out there. But folks, listen, you don't have to say those things to be implying those things. I don't have to, to walk right out and say, well, I don't believe that Jesus was not God in order to walk as though Jesus wasn't God. Because if I believe that Jesus was who He is, the knowledge of that is going to create something in my life that's going to constantly push me towards who He is. Because if I said to myself, you know what? Barack Obama is not the president. Barack Obama is not the president. You know what? People have been saying that for four years. But i got news for you. You go to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., and I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, or Independent, the guy that's going to be hanging on that picture inside of the White House or in Congress is going to be a picture of Barack Hussein Obama. That's just it. You can believe whatever you want to, but that is who was voted the president in the last two elections. That's the way it is. And so, folks, we can say whatever we want to, but at the end of the day, we've got to come to terms with that there's a truth that's central out there. And so the reason that those things are important as we're studying the book of 1 John is because the fact that some of these fallacies really have just been rebranded in some various forms. And what they've done is they've introduced themselves to the church in just a slew of false teachers. Here's what Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 1.17. He said, these are the type of people through eloquent or clever speech would only serve to make the cross of Christ and thus grace really of no effect or, or powerless. Here's what it's called today. Back then, we knew it as Gnosticism. Now it's called liberal theology. Now it's called hyper grace. Uh, it's called universalism. Uh, it's called hyper Calvinism. It's called the emergent church. Here in New Orleans, it's often called Catholicism. We talked about last week, it's called these new liberties. And so you can brand it whatever you want to, but at the end of the day, it subverts something, the grace of God, and changes exactly the impact that it has upon our life. It goes right back to that same source of deceitfulness. And so whatever the name, it's that exact same thing, and the same thing that we've got to deal with is was penned by the Apostle John. Now listen to this, as a result of that infiltration, this letter says that we've got to go back to the source, and what he says, and you put this number one in our study tonight, that which was from the beginning. If I want to know what something means, where do I go? I go to the beginning. I go to the source. Has anybody ever been in a conversation with someone and they said, well, some, such and such said this about you? Or somebody was telling me that they heard somebody say this about somebody they heard something about. And at the end of the day, you get to the, uh, the thing you say, well, listen, that didn't sound anything like what I said. Remember the game you played as, uh, as children called Telephone? You'd speak something to someone's ear and it'd go all the way around the room. And remember at the end of the at the end of the line you say, What was it? Everything was totally different. And so who it started with was the teacher, right? And so at the end, who determined what was the thing that was said? It was back to the teacher. The teacher said, No, I didn't say those fifteen different things. Here's what I said. So you go back to the source. And so John is saying, listen, there's some issues that are arising in the church. And I'm saying tonight, there's some issues that are arising in the church. And if we want to know what the answer is, where do you go? You go back to the beginning. You go back to the source. So in other words, uh, the Word of God says that heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my word will never pass away. That's Matthew 13 and 31. Or in other words, heaven and earth are the product of what God has declared, and they are not and never were intended to be eternal. Okay? Heaven was never intended to be eternal. Earth was never intended to be eternal. Some of you say, well, he said he's going to prepare a place for me. But you know what? There's going to be a why. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. The only thing that's eternal, when he said heaven and earth, or all those things created are going to be passed away. But there's something that will never pass away, and that is going to be my word. So truth has never had to change. Truth has never had to adapt to circumstance. Truth has never had to consider culture. Truth has never had to consider your hurt feelings or your bad day. Truth is that eternal standard. It's that plumb line which every single thing else is going to be judged by. Okay? But the Gnostics of John's day, they did exactly the same thing that we see happening in their day. What they did is they invited a new standard, fresh ideas, or more relevant ideologies into the picture. Folks, how do we see that today? We see these people who are thinking, you know what? There's, there's got to be a different way. There's got to be an easier way. There's got to be a more relevant way. There's got to be a way that's more attractive to people. Folks, listen, the gospel that we preach, the gospel that saves every one of our lives, is a very bloody gospel. It's a gospel that you eliminate the blood, if you eliminate the, the, the crucifixion, if you eliminate the hardships. What you've done is you've effectively eliminated the very thing that brings change and transformation into our lives. And so what they've done is they've brought a gospel in, and here's what happened in the first century. And tell me if you've seen these exact same things happening here in, what, the 21st century now. And here's the problem. What they've done is they begin to build their theology upon emotions. Have you ever seen that happen? You build a theology upon what you feel, or your hurt feelings, or your emotions. Have you ever heard people say that, listen, I, I go there, I worship at this place because, man, it just makes me feel so good. Now, folks, I would rather feel good than bad any day. You know what I'm saying? I don't wake up every day in the moly groves. I don't do that. I, I don't live a life of up one minute and down the next. Once I got born again, I gave that stuff up. Okay, I don't want to live that life. But you know what? I don't live the life and serve Jesus just because I feel feel good every day. Come on. I serve Him not because of what He does, but because of who He is. And so I'm not going to be changed and transformed and motivated by my emotions. But you see also people basing things, they build their theology around experiences. Well, I know what it says, but here's what I went through. Now, folks, there are a lot of us, if we think to ourselves... There's probably situations in our life where our theology has been changed by the things that we've gone through. That how many times have some of you guys that, that go out and minister on the streets have said, well, if God is such a loving God, why did God allow me to go through this circumstance? Or why did He allow me to experience this? As though God is sitting somewhere spinning plates thinking, man, you know what? I hope their plate don't fall because that's going to change everything about my character. Man, I hope this person don't stub their toe because, man, that's going to change the way they look at me. Man, I hope that, that person doesn't get drunk and die in a car accident because then their family's going to think I'm an unloving God. Well, I hope this person doesn't make a wrong business decision to lose everything because then they're going to think I'm unfair. Folks, there's, there's what, 7 billion people on planet Earth Seven billion different circumstances every single day. But there's one God that functions outside the realm of time and space that does not change just because seven billion people's circumstances change. He said, I am the Lord God and I do not change. He's God regardless if I stomp my toe. He's God regardless if I go broke. He's God regardless if the house burns down. Amen? God is God and He always will be God. He sits upon a throne of glory and He's not going to scoot over for anybody. 
That's who He is. He's not the God that, uh, that I'm under some circumstance. He's the God that allows me to be under His blood and to be do- adopted into the beloved and not to set my affections upon things that are below, but to set my affections upon things that are above. Come on. What about the God of cultural acceptance? Think about that. We have a God that just changes based upon culture. You know, you had the no-name gods. You had the God that was the God of the, the Native Americans. You had the God of the, the, the African gods. You had the, the Western gods. You had the, the Eastern mysticism God. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the cultural experience was. Here, there's this big battle about gay marriage and all these things. Well, you know what? I think Oprah Winfrey, somebody mentioned last week, that, that she said that she, she believed in God until she heard a preacher preach that God was a jealous God. And she said, well, I would never want to serve a God that's jealous. He, he created everything and He's jealous. Well, you talk about just the lack of depth of understanding of what it means to be a jealous God. Yeah. So she said, I just believe that the God of Christianity couldn't believe be the God that they would because He was a jealous God. Yes, He's jealous. In other words, He said, I am the Lord God and above me there is no other. In other words, I'm a God that's not going to stand in competition with the, all the other gods that we create. What about the God of intellectualism? We see that religion on the streets all the time. People say, well, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. That's what they say. Then you say, well, is it today's science or the science of 100 years ago? Or the science 50 years from now? Is the science that, that discovered uh, the, 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 the Java man that later had to be the science that said that that, that was just a pig's bone? Or it's the science that used to say that the earth was flat, but the Bible says the earth was round. So which science do you, do you believe in? Or I'm, I'm so smart that I believe that. Well, what you'll find is most people that could, uh, consider they serve the God of intellectualism are actually just agnostics. They just don't have enough... Knowledge, Because if you nail them down and say, well, where did you get your information? Well, I read it here. A professor told me. So you just got it secondhand. And so you complain about the fact that I got my Bible secondhand, but you're getting everything that you have secondhand. So it's a God of, and a religion of intellectualism. What about the God of pseudo-spirituality? Why do I call it pseudo-spirituality? Because there's so many things that people want to call God that just because somebody calls it God doesn't mean it's God. Now, I'm not just talking about the New Age movement. I'm just not talking about uh, uh, Scientology or Christ science. I'm talking about within things that consider themselves mainstream Christianity, these things that promote themselves as Christ. But at the end of the day, it's really a man-centered gospel. Now, let's just, let's just lay it up on our shoulders here today. How many, how many things, many of you guys in this church, in this place here tonight, this Bible study, you've been walking with the Lord for 10 years plus. Right? I'm going to shoot low. Ten years plus. Right? Many people. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for 20 years plus. Some 30 years plus. Right? Now think about this. In the course of 30 years, think about all the things that we, that have walked with the Lord for many years. I'm not talking about some of these uh, younger people that maybe just come in to the Lord in the last few years. But think about us that have been in the church a long time. Think about all the things that we called church that weren't really about Jesus. They were really about us. They were about our comfort. They were about our schedule. They were about our taste in music. They were about all of those things. And we, we present these things and we're so arrogant that we think that God ought to honor those things. And he ought to say, we did such a fine job. Folks, there's nothing that we can offer Him that's going to impress Him besides a humble heart. Right. You hear what I'm saying? 
If we think for a minute that we're gonna that that that, that Brian and, and Kyle because they they're gonna hit all the right keys, we're gonna sing all the right notes, and somehow that's gonna impress him because we did those things. No, what does he want? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. It's humbling ourselves before God, whatever it looks like, whatever it sounds like, whatever it requires of us. It's denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and imitating Him. None of those other things impress Him. Most of the things that we do, we do to cater to our wants and, and our desires and, and this pseudo-Christianity that we're presenting and calling it God. Now, how many of you have ever heard of a guy named Carlton Pearson? Remember Carlton Pearson? Carlton Pearson, back in the, uh, back in the 80s and early 90s, he pastored a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Higher Dimensions. Uh, Carlton Pearson was a graduate of ORU. He was one of the ORU singers when he was a young man. And, and he was a guy that was put on the fast track. He, he, he pastored a dynamic church and he, he had uh, musical recordings and he would have these, these big conferences that thousands of people uh, came, uh, came to. He had that big mega church in, in Tulsa. He was a regular on Christian television and he was always, you look at Charisma Magazine, he was always one of those speakers that were at those places. He was this big up and coming Pentecostal leader. And all of a sudden he gave this TV interview. And in this TV interview, he was began to talk about what changed his theology. He said he had grandparents on one side, I can't remember if it was his mother's or father's side, that, that weren't Christians, but they were real good people. And he said they died. And he said according to his theology at the time, he had to believe in his mind that his grandmother and grandparents, who were so nice to him, who were such good people, were such moral people, that just chose not to believe in Jesus... He said there's no way that he could reconcile in his heart that they died and went to hell. And so what did he do? He changed his theology. He departed from the faith. He said there's no way that such a loving God would, would, would hold my grandparents to that standard. As good, as benevolent, as nice as they were, as, as sweet as they were to me as a kid. There's no way that I can reconcile that there's a God that's a God of love, that's, that's any type of God that would send them to hell for eternity. Folks, listen, what did he do? He changed his theology based upon his experiences, his failure, his culture, whatever it was. What did he do? He found himself finally ordained and associated with a, with a, with a, with a denomination that ordains homosexuals and all these other type of things. And, and he's, he's found a group of people that will embrace his cultural and experiential Christianity. How many of you ever heard of, uh, let's, let's move forward a few years, how many of you ever heard of a guy named Rob Bell? Have you heard of the book Love Wins? Have you heard of the book Velvet Elvis? These things that were on the New York Times bestsellers list that were heretical. I remember when they first came out, I would tell people that I knew in the ministry that were, they were good people that, that loved the Lord and, 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 and preached and saw the churches. I said, stay away from the Velvet Elvis stuff. Say, well, listen, he's bringing up some good points. I said, that stuff is heresy. That stuff is diluting down and dumbing down the gospel and something's going to happen. Well... Up until last year, he pastored a, a, a church of 10,000 uh, people in, I believe, Michigan, I believe it was, or Indiana, somewhere up there. He was a best-selling author 2011. He was named one of the 100 most influential people by Time Magazine. He produced these wildly popular NUMA videos, these things that people were watching, and they were showing them to their college-age students. And all these people were getting caught up in the Rob Bell hysteria. Yet, listen to this, March 17, 2013, just last month, in an interview with Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, Bell said, I am for marriage. I'm for fidelity. I'm for love. That sounds good, doesn't it? Anybody in here for marriage? Anybody in here for fidelity? Well, one of us. Anybody in here for love? 
Amen. Most of us. Come on. Then he goes on to say, he said, whether it's a man or a woman, a woman or a woman, or a man and a man, Bell said, he said, I think the ship has already sailed. He said, this world that we're living in now is a different world, and we need to affirm people wherever and whatever they are. He goes on to say, he appeared, and to distance himself in this article, and he, and, uh, and he said in the same interview, he said, by taking what he sees as the death of evangelical Christianity, he says, it's a very narrow, politically intertwined, culturally ghettoized subculture. He says, evangelicals have turned away a lot of people from church by talking about God in ways that don't actually shape people into more loving, compassionate people. He said, they've turned people away from God because they're not talking to them in the right way. He added that evangelicals have supported policies and ways of viewing the world that are actually very destructive. He said, we've done it in the name of God. And he said, we need to repent. Well, he's right. We do need to repent. We need to change the way we think. We need to change the way we think, not about the, the principles of Rob Bell, but the principles of the Word of God. Why? Because the church has turned people away from God. Why? Because we presented something in the name of God that doesn't look like God. And I'm not talking about the God of Rob Bell that says, you know what, just um, mend and, and bow to your culture. I'm talking about the God of the Word of God that says, I do not change under any circumstance. So there's two men that have literally had an impact 20 years ago with, with, with Carlton Pearson, with the, with the Pentecostal movement, and Rob Bell with the evangelicals. Tens and thousands of people that they've influenced with a false gospel, not unlike the gospel that it presented right here in the book of First John. So First John one one, that which was from the beginning. So John is first calling them back to first things. If I want to get back to that basis, I want to get back to the principles of the Word of God. If I want to have a, a life that's immovable, un, unshakable, that's that's always abounding in Christ Jesus, I've got to make the first thing the first thing. You see what I'm saying? I've got to concentrate in making those things of the most important, the most important thing. And so, beginning is by definition this, if you're taking notes, to be a beginning, it's a rule. It's a ruler in the sense of kingly or magisterial. And it's obviously a starting point. So, beginning here is by definition, it's a rule, it's a ruler, and it's a starting point. Folks, you know what's interesting about this epistle? It essentially begins the exact same way the book of Genesis begins. And how's that? In the beginning. Let's go back and make the first thing the first thing. And so John is direct, uh, is, begins to address these false teaching in the church. He says, listen, he said, we've got to start somewhere. We can't start midway through and hope everybody's up to speed. He said, we've got to go back to the beginning. So if our concept, think about this in regards to the Word. If our concept of creation starts wrong then our concept of the Creator will end wrong. So if my concept of creation is off, my concept of Creator will be off. And so if I say to myself, you know, listen, I think that, 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 that the book of Genesis is just allegorical. It's just a kind of a, a type and a story to kind of define something. What, what becomes of my Creator? He also becomes allegorical. He becomes the, the, a tooth fairy. He becomes Santa Claus. He becomes the, the Easter Bunny. He becomes some other type of thing that we just conjure up in our mind as people say, listen, it's just something to keep people under control. And so if the, the story of creation is just allegorical, it's just a, a metaphor, then what happens? It nullifies who my God is. So I've got to get the Creator right out of creation. I've got to go back to the beginning. 
And we talked about this as well. If, if the base of our faith starts wrong, then our behavior in regards to our faith will end up wrong. Let me say that again. If the basis of our faith starts wrong, then our behavior in regards to it will end wrong. Folks, listen. Your behavior will look like your belief. Do I need to say that again? Your behavior will look like and be the proof of what you really believe. You believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you really believe it, your life will be a reflection of that Lordship. Do you believe that He calls us to be holy? Then our behavior will be that of holiness. Do you believe that, that he's, he's got this Lordship? Then our behavior is going to be that of obedience. Do you believe that He came to reconcile the world back into ourselves? Then what are we going to do? We're going to have the 2 Corinthians 5.19. The, the ministry of the word of reconciliation. And so if I, how many of you believe that Jesus could come back at any time? Yes. How many of you have heard it preached in churches? How many of you have heard it in conferences, in, in prophecy conferences? And they say, you know what, there's all these things in place that Jesus has come, could come back at any time. How many of you have heard people preach it and they're very convincing? How many of you have heard of the Perry Stones? You've heard the Hal Lindsay's. You've read the great, late, great planet Earth. You've seen all these things, just like I have. But what's, what's amazing is you see those things and they say, Jesus could come back at any time. And they begin to tell you all the news and they say, listen, prophecy is being fulfilled in the headlines. And I'm thinking to myself, if the people really believe that, as soon as they dismissed the conference and said amen, they would go out and shout it on the streets that Jesus is coming back. Rather than running to the buffet at Shoney's and thinking that we're going to sit here and we're going to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That if our beliefs were really central to who we were, our action would be commensurate with that belief system. And so if I think that if people die and go to hell, what's going to happen? I'm really going to believe it and I won't want anybody to go to hell. If I think that Jesus could come back at any time, what am I going to go do? I'm going to go tell people that Jesus, not save people, but I'm going to tell lost people that Jesus is coming back. And here's what you've got to do to prepare for it. And so folks, listen, our actions, our behavior is going to be indicative of our genuine belief system. Consider again, we talked about it briefly last week, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, The Spirit speaks expressly that in the last days or latter times, some will depart from the faith, They'll give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Depart. That's a simple word, right? It just means to deviate. It's to get off course. But it's also defined as being an imposter. How many of you know that Satan himself presents himself as what? An angel of light. He's an imposter. He'll come with signs and lying wonders. He'll deceive so many people. He'll do those type of things because he's an imposter. And so we know that many people are going to deviate. They're going to get off course. And it says they'll give heed to seducing spirits. We know what to be seduced is, to be drawn away. But listen to this. It also means to wander off as a vagabond or a tramp. Do you the word vagabond? It's somebody that just, you know what, pitches a, a, a handkerchief full of their clothes over a, an old pole over their, in their jump. We call them, back in the day we called them hobos. Now they call them, now they've really made it politically correct. Now they're called travelers. You know, used to travelers was a guy that sold you insurance and he had an umbrella, a red umbrella. Now the travelers are the people that don't take a bath and they don't comb their hair and they're rebellion and they jump on trains and run around the country being rebellious. That's a traveler now. Is that, is that, and I write, it's a culture that calls themselves travelers. It doesn't look anything like the travelers of 25 years ago. So we've become politically correct in all of those type of things. And so it becomes that thing. But what is the, what is the characteristics of somebody that would be called a vagabond, like the word says? Uh, a tramp, uh, uh, a traveler. Basically what it is, and tell me if I'm wrong, Michael, 
it, it puts you in a situation where you really don't have any accountability. Bar none, most people that end up in a situation like that, you get tired, something happens, you say, listen, I'm just tired of telling me people what to do. I want to I want to get off the radar for a while. I want to get off the grid because I can go where I want, I can do what I want, I can say what I want, I can live how I want. But how many of you know at the end of the day, you say, man, I still got a lot of wants still. Man, this isn't what it was all uh, piped out to be. This isn't what I expected it to be. And so he says that, that the time is going to come when men are going to wander away. They're going to become unaccountable to truth. They're going to become unbridled. So we're seduced into a self-defined system of values and belief that literally cater to our flesh. Listen, I'm going to do it because I feel like it. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Listen, I'm my own man. I'm an individual. I can do these things. But Jude 1.16 says this in regards to false teachers. It says, They walk according to their own desires... Their mouths utter arrogant words, and it says they flatter people for their own advantage or benefit. In other words, when you're just that, when you have that vagabond type of mentality, basically you're going to tell anybody what they want to hear to get what you want to get. So if I need to be this, I'm going to be this. I'm going to need to be that. I'll be that. Whatever the story I need to tell to, to make myself compatible to my environment to benefit me is exactly where I'm going to be. And that's exactly what the Word of God teaches is going to happen. You know, a number of years ago when I was pastoring in Texas, me and a brother of the Lord said, you know what, we, 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 did, we did a lot of ministry to the homeless. We fed hundreds of people. And we said, what we're going to do is we're going to go, quote, unquote, undercover. And so we just went out on the streets. It was wintertime in North Texas. It gets very cold. Uh, snow and ice and all these things. And that night just happened to be when a cold front came through. And so we were going to go out undercover as homeless guys and just hang out with the homeless people. We didn't tell them we were pastors. We didn't say anything about them. We just went out with our pack on our bag and, and all these things. And we were going to go hang out with them. And so we were out by some railroad tracks and, and met a homeless guy. Now, listen to what he told me. He said, listen, he said, I think the guy was in, in his early 50s at the time. And he was a, he was a Vietnam uh, veteran. He said, listen, I'm homeless because I want to be homeless. He said, I'll tell you what happened to me. He said, I got, he said, I, I got out of the military, out of Vietnam, and he said, the base that I was stationed at was on the East Coast. He said, but I lived on the West Coast. He said, but when I got discharged, he said, they gave me a, they gave me a, a bus ticket to get all the way across the country. And he said, I thought to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cash that bus ticket in and get the cash, and I'm just going to hitchhike across the country to be able to see it. And he said, I never have made it home. I never have made it home. And he said, you know what? He said, I stayed gone so long. He said, I got where I just didn't even feel right about going home. Mm -hmm. He said, I figured they dismissed me years ago, thought I was dead or whatever else. And he said, I would not even feel right about going home. And he said, I like now. He said, I can hop a train. I know where they go. And he said, I don't have any accountability but to myself. So he had a place, but he had no personal responsibility towards no one. And he made that decision. He became a vagabond. Another guy. I was in a place of people in the ministry that have these horses on their property. And the horses are always running wild out there. And they're so beautiful to, to look at. And all these type of things. But they would always tell you, listen, that horse is no good to us until we break that horse. You know what? You see horses. You see these, these National Geographic. You see the wild Mustangs running through. Now, they're beautiful to look at. They're strong. They've got all these, these, these abilities. But until you can bridle that horse, that horse has no benefit to you. 
What is it? It's just a bunch of potential. And folks, that's exactly the same thing that happens. It becomes this self-serving rather than self-denying gospel that says, what's in it for me? Until I take up the responsibility, I say, listen, sometimes you've got to go home and take up the responsibility that you left behind. Sometimes you've got to get a bit in your mouth. You've got to get bridled so God can do something with you and make you accountable to somebody else besides just yourself. Otherwise, everything in your life is strictly going to be self-serving. That's exactly what John was dealing with with these people. They abandoned it. They said, listen, we're going to do things our way. We're, going to, we're not going to have any accountability because, listen, uh, the, the flesh is evil and so we can't help ourselves. We're just going to do things wrong. We never can change. And John came and he says, listen, we're going to get back to the bit and put it in your mouth and bring you back to the beginning and show you exactly what it looks like. And so that unbridled, that unaccountable, that roving mentality slowly but surely leads one away from the beginning and it leads people into an era of destruction. That's what ends up happening. Because it never ends up the way that you thought it was going to end up. I'm just going to do this. I don't care what anybody thinks. How many of you have ever said that? I really don't care what anybody thinks. Well, you're a liar. Because every single one of us care what somebody thinks. We all do. None of us wake up every day and say, you know what? I'm thinking to myself, who can I irritate? How many enemies can I get? We always would love people to be kind to us. We want people to like us. We'd like a friend. We'd like a companion. The only time we don't want that is when we're so full of ourselves, we harden everybody else, and we want to live some self-fulfilled prophecy. See, see? I told you nobody likes me. Well, you're no sourpuss. Why would anybody like you? <laughs> you're right. Nobody does like you. The Bible says a friend makes themselves friendly. You know the people with the most friends? Are friendly people. Hello. You hear what I'm saying? Why doesn't anybody call me? Some people say all the time. Why doesn't anybody come and see me? Why would anybody want to call you? Why would anybody want to come see you? You're so full of self. The day second they show up, it's all about you. When's the last time you asked somebody, how you doing? Forget about me for a minute. What can I do to make your life a little bit better? Is there something I can do for you? But folks, we do it naturally just like they begin to do it spiritually. It becomes self-serving. Ephesians 4, 11-14. He gave some apostles. That's what John was, wasn't he? He gave some prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. He goes on to say the responsibility was to equip God's people to do His work and to build up the church, the body of Christ, until we can all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now listen to this, that we no longer be immature little children. He said we won't be tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of new teaching, no longer roving around like some vagabond. He said we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with these lies so clever that they sound like the truth. So John says, listen... God called me to be an apostle, to bring you back to this place, to bring you back to the beginning. So, we go back and look at the things from the source. Otherwise, what happens? We depart from the faith. We give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now, I touched on it a little bit last week about doctrines of devils, but you know, there's really a, a rule in regards to reading the Word of God. And, and here, I, I, just, I want to point out something to you for you to think about that may help you understand really kind of John's instructions about what doctrines of devils are. Anybody familiar with a term called the law of first mention or the law of first reference? You guys that are part of the, the Bible college, you, you mentioned that. So if I want to know what something is, I go back to the first place that's talked about. That, that place where that set the tone for it. So the first the law of first mention can also it's 
It's a principle that requires one to go to that portion of the Scripture where the doctrine is mentioned for the first time and to study the first occurrence of the same in order to get the fundamental inherent meaning of that doctrine. And so if I want to know what he's talking about, and I hear something, I've got to go back to where it was first mentioned. Otherwise, what's going to happen? I'm going to be out of context, and it's going to be pretext, right? And so you hear things many times, you think, well, where did that come from? And so if I said to you, and I'm, I'm going to say some things that I know people are going to catch because we talk about these things periodically. If, if somebody walks up to you and says, well, sister, how you doing? Well, I'm blessed and highly favored. <laughs> people chuckle. Why? Because what's the law of first reference? What's the only reference in Scripture where anybody said that I'm blessed and highly favored? Do you remember? Mary. Mary when she was pregnant. And so I had a man one day at church walked up and I said, Brother, how are you doing? He said, I'm blessed and highly favored. I said, man, that's a miracle. He looked at me and I said, how'd you get pregnant? <laughs> because nowhere in the Scripture does it say I'm blessed and highly favored. And so I can look through it. I can see people talking about God is raising up Joel's army. Well, Joel's army was not a, 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 an army of righteousness. It was an army of judgment. So we can see all these things that through the Scripture that, that, that people talk about. And it sounds so good. But, but if you go back to the beginning of where it was really derived from, it really wasn't a good source. And so we've got to go back to the law of first reference and look at those things to see exactly what it really meant. And so, what's the first occurrence for doctrines of devils? Anybody have any idea? Let's go back to the beginning. What was the occurrence of doctrine of devils? Let's take you all the way back to Genesis. Adam and Eve. Huh? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Let's look at that doctrine of devils. Here it comes up. Genesis 3, 5 and 6. Here's that devil preaching this little message right there in the garden. He's like, you know, I know what he told you, that you shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that you do those things, you'll what? You'll die. And here's him preaching his doctrines of devils. He said, God knows when the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open. He said, you'll be like God, you'll know good and evil. And the woman was convinced. You know what, we probably got just the cliff notes of that message, but I'm sure he was really convincing. It sounded so good. It sounded so right. It just had enough truth to it. And it says the woman was convinced. Why? Because she saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband with her, and he ate it too. And so folks, listen. What doctrine was established right there? Did you hear it? There was a doctrine established. Or what was that false or deviant teaching? Well, I'm going to give you A, B, C, D, E, and F. The first doctrine was rebellion. That's the doctrine of devils. He said, I know what he said, but... How many of you have ever done that? Well, I know what God's telling me, but... Well, if you look why Saul was rejected, why was it? Because of rejection. That he rejected the truth. He said, listen, to obey is always better than to sacrifice. Saul, King Saul decided he was going to do something that, that God didn't tell him to do and offered the sacrifice. And God said, to obey is better than to sacrifice. He said, but he said, rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. So it changes the way, the dynamics of how you think. And so he says, I, I know what God said, but I know what God told me to do, but I know the direction God's putting on my life, but. So how many of you didn't think you were walking in doctrines of devils, but you got a whole lot of buts in your life? Folks, that's doctrines of devils. And so when you read those passages, you say some are going to depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And you said it's not you because you're not carving pentagrams on your arm or, or writing 666 or killing chickens, that it's not you. 
Anytime we say to ourselves, I know what God told me to do, I know the obedience He wants for me, but you add that but to it, what you've done is you've been seduced into a doctrine of devils. What's the second one? Discord. He says, well, God knows that He's just keeping you from something better. Doctrine of, de- uh, of devils is discord. Pro- Proverbs 6, 6 begins to tell us, it says there's six things the Lord hates, and seven are an abomination to Him. And one of those things that those that sow seeds of discord among the brethren. If I bring something in that's going to bring discord, it's going to bring a disconnect. It's going to dissect people. It's going to bring division to people. That's a doctrine of devils. The third thing that that deviant teaching did was ambition. He said, here's the thing, you're going to be like him. You know what? Man, you deserve more. Man, you're a gifted guy. You're talented. Man, you're a blessing. Man, you have more to offer. They just don't understand you. Listen, they're holding you back. How many of you have heard those things like that in your life? Man, I, you deserve better than that. They're just walking all over you. There's, there's, there's more to it than this. All of these type of things that create and they begin to, 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 to bring us to a place of ambition. And, and they're just, you know what? They've got a position that you deserve and this and that. Well, the, the last three are pretty obvious. He said it's good to eat or the lust of the flesh. It's good to look at, the lust of the eyes. It's going to make you wise the pride of life. And so you see all these deviant theology that was taught that you have to go back to the beginning to see. So, But let's go back just a little bit further. So how do you go back further than Genesis? Well, let's go back into the dateless past where, where Satan, that one that was in the garden, fell. You'll find that in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 14. Isaiah 14, 12-14. Here's what he's talking about. I don't know exactly the date on this, but it was before Genesis, I assure you that. He says, Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. He said, you've been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, for you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven. He said, I'm going to set my throne above God's stars. I'm going to preside on the mountains of God, far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens to be like the Most High. Do you know something about that? He said, I will ascend into heaven. I will set my throne above God's. I will preside among the mountains. I will climb to the highest heavens. I will be like the Most High. I'll call my own shots. I'll do the things my own way. I'll establish my own rules. I'll establish my own standards, my own belief system. I'll do this because it gives me the best chance and the best opportunity to exalt me. And so, folks, the biggest doctrine of devils is the the doctrine that makes everything about you. What makes you more comfortable? What makes you happier? Rather than saying, if I'm going to be His disciple, I deny me... I take up my cross, the instrument of my own demise, my own execution, and I do what? I imitate Him. I don't say, God, imitate me. I say, God, I want to imitate you. And so the Gnostics that we're addressing here in this book, he said, what they did is they began to teach those doctrines to those people, and now we're seeing the exact same thing happen. And so what they'll always do is they'll present a gospel built upon man rather than built upon the rock, which is Christ Jesus. Because once you build it upon the rock, it's going to reflect the rock. It's not going to reflect the flesh. And here we give you another beginning. We saw it in there in, in Isaiah. Here's another beginning we'll see in Exodus chapter 32, 1 through 5. You want to see those doctrines of devils. Exodus 32. He said, When the people realized that Moses was taking forever and coming down off the mountain, they rallied around Aaron and said this, Do something. Things aren't moving fast enough. Do something. And they said, make gods for us who will lead us. They said, that Moses, that man who got us out of Egypt, who knows what even happened to him? What does that demonstrate? Impatience. 
So Aaron told them, he said, I'll tell you what, take the gold rings from your ears, offer your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And since they all did it, they removed the gold rings from their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And it says he took the gold from their hands, from their hands, and he cast it in the form of calf, shaping it with an engraving tool. And the people responded with enthusiasm. And he says, these are our gods, O Israel, who brought us out from Egypt. Now think about some things that they did. Number one, they said, we're tired of waiting. Anybody ever be impatient? Anybody in here have a problem with patience? Repent. That's a doctrine of devils. And it says, they said, take us those things, remove them from your ears. You know, the Word of God tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust, they'll heap to themselves teachers because they have itching ears. And so I'm going to take those things that are most valuable to my hearing, that make me feel good, that reinforce me. And he says, they took them from their hands. That always speaks of your own authority. I'm yielding up. I'm giving you that which is out of my hand. So we see that direction that he gave them this, this false uh, 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 doctrine. There was a doctrine of devils that he just adhered to those things. But look at, this, look at this doctrinal direction that we get in those six words. He says what? He says, as it was from the beginning. Folks, listen. I, I cannot underscore really the importance enough of right origin is essential for right action. We'll say that again. Right origin is essential for right actions. If you start out in the wrong spot, you will never end up in the right spot. If you're not going the right plumb line. You've got to have that place established. For instance, if I said, okay, I'm going to give you a map. And Brian, I'm going to give you this map. And I want you to go right here from 2232 uh, Roosevelt. And I want you to follow this map. And I want it's going to take you all the way to 500 Bourbon Street. Okay? Now, what if you don't start at 2232 and you start over here on Esplanade somewhere? It's not going to take you to the right place. Why? Because you're not even on the right place. It's not like plugging your GPS in. If that GPS is not connected to a satellite that defines where you're at, you're never going to be able to link it to some place that's going to take you where you're going. And so, folks, right origin is essential for right action because your behavior, once again, is always going to be reflected by your belief. That's why he sought to establish the argument of his, uh, uh, from, uh, the origin of his argument right from the, the get-go. Folks, we'll tell you something else. Counterfeit is only acceptable to them who have no expertise in regards to the genuine article. You know, I can hear things. You know, I've been saved a long time. I've read the Bible so many times. And so I hear things, and man, it's like, man, I know something's not right about that. Anybody do that? It's like I can't put a finger on it, but something just doesn't sound right. And there's, there's these buzzwords that you hear, and it's like they ignite them and say, man, I need to take a deeper look at what's happening there. Well, because once you've handled the real thing, when something's just not quite right. Now, folks, listen, I didn't fall off a turnip truck one day and bump my head and start speaking in tongues. You know what? I, 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 I was raised in, in the spirit-filled atmosphere, the, the gifts of the spirit. I believe in every bit of that stuff. And because I've seen the real thing, I've seen people get off the deathbed. I, I've seen the power of God change and transform and deliver people. I know what it looks like. But I also know what it looks like when people get pushed down and they lay there with one eye open and you have to have a catcher behind you because they'll snap their neck. Amen? <laughs> I know what the fake looks like because I've seen the real. I don't know what the fake looks like because all I've seen is the fake. I know what it looks like because I've seen the real thing. Folks, listen, when I worked in banking before I entered the ministry, you know how they teach the tellers to recognize counterfeit money? You know how they did it, Caprice? No, they had them handle real money. 
Because once you've touched the real thing, you know what the paper feels like. You know what the raised edges of the ink feel like. And so if somebody puts something in your hand that's not the real thing, it's like there's just something not right. They didn't have them look at counterfeit money. They didn't have them look at touch fake money. They had them touching. They put them through a process day after day. We want you to handle certain denominations of currency on a regular basis. That way when something touches the end of your finger, mm -mm, something's not right about that. Folks, the way you, you, you learn the real thing is through studying the real thing, not the counterfeit. How many people have had somebody say, well, have you ever studied, I know what you believe, but have you ever studied the Book of Mormon? Have you ever studied the, uh, the, 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 the gospel of whatever, these false... You need to study those, and you'll know. No, once I've touched the real thing, mm -hmm. I know what the real thing looks like. I know what it tastes like. I know what it smells like. I know what it changes and transforms. We've got to come back to that place where the real thing is enough for us. And so, as we get deeper in this epistle, what we're going to see is he begins to address that Gnostic problem by bringing them back to the realization of the origin so that they could clearly identify the error. Now, folks, if I want to see the beginning, that's what he's talking about. Get back to the beginning. How are you saved? Anybody here saved? How'd you get saved? According to the Word, in the beginning, how'd you get saved? We are saved by grace, by grace through faith. Everybody in here saved, saved by grace through faith? And it wasn't a magic wand, it wasn't because somebody wrote your name on the right paper and you got dumped in the, the right amount of water, it wasn't because of that, right? And so the origin says that I'm saved by grace through faith. The origin also says where sin abounded, what? Grace abounded much more. Amen. Romans 6 1 says, Why? Just because grace abounds, am I going to continue to sin? God forbid. And so if I want to know what the, the origin of that is, I want to know where I came from. If I want to know what it is to be saved, I need to know what it is to be saved by grace through faith. Well, because I see a lot of people that claim to be saved, but I say at the origin of it, it doesn't look anything like it was. Because if any man's in Christ, what? His origin will be what? Brand new. Right. Old things are passed away. All things become new. new. So what if they're not? They're not a new creature. Then you're not a new creature. That's right. it's, it's almost too simple. Right. If I'm a drunk and I get saved and I still want to be a drunk, I've not been set free. Right. If I'm an adulterer and I get saved and I'm still running all around with my wife, I, I didn't get set free. You hear what I'm saying? Right. If I'm a liar and I still find it okay to lie after I, I pray to prayer, I haven't been set free. He don't set us free to keep us in chains. That's right. That's right. When I know the truth, when I go back to the source, when I go back to the origin, I'm free indeed. There's a freedom that comes into my life. And so John was bringing them back to the place of origin. He said, listen, by grace we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Paul said this in Ephesians 2 and 8. Now, what is grace? Now, in the Old Testament, we know what grace was. People talk about this all the time. It's the unmerited favor of God. Right? Why was it unmerited? Because it wasn't earned. Huh? It wasn't earned. It wasn't earned? You know what unmerited means? Unpaid for. Right? Before the cross, was anything really paid for yet? No. What did they have to do? They had to sacrifice, they had to sacrifice something every single year as like a down payment on what was going to happen. That little lamb that they was was just a type and shadow of the payment that will be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And so when uh, Abram got called from Ur of the Chaldees, and it says that he believed God, it was counted unto him righteousness. 
Now, was he doing anything special? Was he sitting there with his hands folded, praying all the time? No, he was just as wicked as everyone else. He just heard God, he believed it. And so he had a measure of grace that carried him. But folks, something happened at the cross of Calvary that changed everything. What happened? He said, it is finished. It's paid for. Paid in full. So that which was unmerited, that which was unpaid for, suddenly it had a value that transcended everything. And so when we were lost, when we were just holding on to the law, just as Paul the Apostle said in, in, in Romans chapter 7, when he gives that parenthetical statement, he says, listen, when I was just under the law, and he said, I didn't realize that, that, that there was something paid for that set me free. He said, the things that I wanted to do, I didn't do them. He said, the things that I said I'm going to do, I ended up not doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. Then he goes on to say in that 8th chapter, he says, but there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus that no longer walk after the flesh, that no longer walk unmerited, but after the Spirit that now has a value that was sealed because of the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. And so in the New Testament, grace changes by definition. It changes from that word that defined unmerited favor to a word that we get charisma or charis from that literally means the divine influence of God upon the heart and its reflection in your life. That's New Testament grace. It doesn't say unmerited favor anymore. That's not even the word. It's not even defined that way after the cross of Calvary. But it's the divine influence. You know what we call it? We call it conviction. We call it anointing. We call it chill bumps. We call it the drawing of the Holy Spirit. We call it our conscience. It's that thing that's that's influencing us. That thing that's, that makes you want to weep when something's wrong. That makes you want to, to go to Him when you have a need. That thing that, that drew you to Him. It's that, that influence. It's that thing. The sufficiency of grace. It's that thing where sin abounds. That there's an influence. It's still drawing us to Him. But He says we're saved by grace through faith. Folks, I think what? Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. I don't care how much grace you have, you'll never please Him unless it's through faith. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Heaven and earth are going to pass away, but His Word will not pass away. So I've got to go back to the source at the beginning. I'll go back to that Word. That way when influence comes upon my life, I know how to respond to that influence. Oh, I feel bad. What do I do? Well, the drunkard gets another drink or the, the immoral person has another relationship. But when the, the influence of God comes upon me and I know that it's His, we call it His goodness, leads us to where? Repentance. It's what brings me to a moral compunction to think differently. Wow, oh, I'm back to the beginning. I'm back to the place where my mind is upon those things that are above and not beneath. I'm thinking differently. I'm thinking the way that He has set up and established in His Word. Folks, we've got to get back to that place of origin. And so when I have a place of origin, now I can move on to the place of authority. And so next week we're going to tackle the issue of authority. And so he brings us to a place of origin. That's the way it was. I'm taking you back to that place which is from the beginning. Folks, we need to bring our relationship back to that place. The, John the Revelator, he ended up telling, right after he wrote this letter, a few years later, he wrote the book of the Revelation. And one of the things he told the church at Ephesus... He said, listen, you've left your first love. You've left that place of origin. You've left that place where I love the truth. I love that origin. 
So before we move forward, what do we have to do? We've got to come back to that place and establish the premise by which everything else is built. So we'll go from the origin. Next week we'll talk about the authority and, and maybe we'll move a little bit further than that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. Father, we want to be built, Lord God, not upon the sand. It's always shifting. But Lord God, we want to be like 